Hey, welcome to the Literary Lens Podcast. This is the murky middle, uh, the show where we discuss publishing issues for those mid-list authors. But I also think aspiring authors will find a lot of resources here so they can go into the industry with the right expectations since a lot of people don't know what they're getting themselves into. I'm Lane Haymont, the president of the Tobias Literary Agency. I do horror and nonfiction and, you know, some thriller, mystery, romance, run the gamut. Um, Anne, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Anne Rose. I'm here at the Tobias Literary Agency where I represent middle grade, young adult, and selective adult titles. Um, I am part of the adult department with Jackie Lifton, who is to my left. I don't know if she is on your side, but she's to my left here. And I will pass it off to her. Thanks. I'm Jackie Lipton, and I head the adult department at Tobias, although I represent pretty much a little bit of everything from kid lit up through adult. I'm particularly interested in nonfiction in all of those age ranges and in fiction. I like mystery. I like romance. I like sci-fi. I kind of like genre stuff. But, you know, I also like a good solid literary piece as well. So I'm going to pass it to Kelly. Yes. Hello. I'm Kelly Dykstrahouse. I am... I'm only on the kidlit side. I rep everything from picture book to young adult novels, fiction and nonfiction, and uh, a few illustrators as well. Okay, before we started recording, Anne and I were having a fist fight because this is, you know, like I said, for midlist authors. So I said Anne should be the one to define what a midlist author is. And right. she strongly objected and told me to go to hell. I was objecting just because I, well, number one, you didn't give me fair warning. Like, why should I be the one to, just because I came up with the brilliant idea for this? Like, that should be obvious. So, I mean, yeah. That's that's, that's... So, so why do I have to define it? Like, <laughs> okay. So, what do people think of when they think of when they hear the term mid list author? I think I often confuse mid list and mid-career, and often it's the same okay. thing. Like often someone who is mid-career has had a, you know, fairly solid career as a mid-list author, which would mean someone who's, you know, solidly publishing and probably making a living on publishing and associated work like teaching and uh, other stuff, editing. Um, but I do think that's something that often gets conflated. Um, so I'm curious as to what other people think. I kind of had the same thoughts, which is why I asked that it be defined here at the beginning, what we're talking about. Um, so I this think, is your fault, Kelly, is basically. Sorry. Yeah. yeah but, in it. <laughs> I do think there's a difference because you can have a mid-list book and be a debut author. Yeah. So I do think that's important to uh, clarify. But I do think a lot of times the two are, are used kind of synonymously. Um, you know, I think when I'm thinking mid-list, I think it's actually an interesting term mm. um, because it assumes then if you've got a middle, you assume the top, which you've got your breakout voice. But then that also assumes that there's there are books at the bottom of the list. And no one, that's not a term. Like there's not bottom list books. So it's you're either mid-list or you're a breakout author. 
that makes sense. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that, I think when we originally had started talking about like what we were going to do when we came to doing a podcast, I suggested oh. doing like that mid career author, just because I feel like there's so much stuff that's geared towards debuts, right? Like we, we do query, even us, we're going to do some query letter talk because I do think that is important, right? But generally speaking, it's, you know, all of the things that new authors are trying to do to break into the industry. But once you get into the industry, what does that mean, right? Mm. So you have an agent, you're here, now what are you going to do? Um, but that's a really good point that you bring up, Kelly. And I think that they call the ones that are at the bottom, they call those um, authors that don't get book deals anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because you were, as soon as you said bottom list, I was like, have I ever had a bottom list book? And I think nothing starts out as a bottom list, but I definitely think publishers have torpedoed their own books or have literally never done anything. You publish a book and then it goes up into ether. Well, but you can also publish a book and then the pandemic happens. So like I, I know of authors, you know, who got six figure book deals in 2019 and the book sold like 500 copies. Um, you know, so is that successful or is that mid-list? They got a great advance and a lot of attention, but no one knew what was going on in March, 2020. So, um, you're right. I mean, the publisher has can have a lot to do with how successful a book is, but sometimes stuff happens. Those are those grand majeure clauses are for, right, Jackie? Yeah, but that doesn't make a book <laughs> successful. That that <laughs> excuses. By the way, I didn't introduce the fact that I am the legal nerd on this panel, and I can talk about how antitrust judges define different markets in the book industry. But that's probably not all that helpful for these purposes. Mm. I mean, it could be later on. Yeah, I'll keep it in reserve. Good, good. And it's interesting you mentioned the pandemic because I had a client whose book literally came out like the first day of the pandemic in Los Angeles. And he had a big book uh, launch at a big bookstore with A-list celebrities going to show up. And I got calls saying it has to be canceled. How dare you have this? It has to be canceled. I was like, all right, I guess that's canceled. And it was going to be a big, cool book. It is a big, cool book. It's got a film option. We're shopping it right now. You know, it's going to be a big, huge TV and we're going to make billions of dollars, knock on wood. But yeah, it got struck by the pandemic and that was no one's fault, you know, obviously, except, you know, no comment. But yeah, what yeah. are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do when that happens, right? So, has the book done well? Yeah, I mean, it's done well. You know, he's a good author. We got him another deal. Um, and once the TV show comes out, he's going to be a rock star. I mean, you know, he's what I would call a mid-list author. But actually, I was having a conversation with a client this morning and, you know, I would describe her as a mid-list author and one thing that came up that was really interesting and maybe we'll have her on in a future podcast is that she has a very successful platform, you know, that she has developed that she can rely on and she's making a living with that platform 
And we were talking about are there areas in which she wants to extend, you know, what are the pros and cons of, and because I represent a little bit of everything, we were sort of looking at the the options and we we're saying, well, there's adult fiction, there's adult nonfiction, you know, there's, she writes a lot in the kidlit side, um, but she does have a very specific comfort zone and she also has a lot of credibility in nonfiction because of her background um, in science and it turned out to be a really interesting cost-benefit analysis discussion because there's a lot of sort of resources that you as an author put into sort of shifting gears and developing a new kind of platform and then that's taking away from what is solidly making you money and I think those are it was a really interesting conversation because I mean those are really uh, significant decisions that I think a lot of mid-list authors think about if they want to be thinking about, you know, can I break out with something in another space in the market? Well, what does that then take away from? So, that, so you know, time is a limited resource. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think too, like on the flip side of that though, like publishing takes so long, right? And, and because of that, um, for an author to be able to get to a point where they can make a money and make a living off of their writing, they have to start looking for those other avenues in order mm-hmm. to create that that income to come in. So I have this conversation with my authors all the time. Like, yes, yes, you write, you know, young adult, but you know, are there any other age groups or genres you're interested in? Because while we're shopping those, we could also be shopping other things. That's when you know those non-compete clauses. You know, we can get away with. Getting, you know, two books released within a year's period of time, if necessary, and those kinds of things. So I think that that's, that's, that, that's, there, there's, there's more of a conversation too, to go along with yes. that. It's a, to make yeah. it happen. So <laughs> I've run into this where I have a mid-list author who's established in say horror or romance, and they want to write something else. Say horror author wants to write romance, which I literally have a horror author who's writing romance. Do they then become a debut author in that genre? Because that's what I personally run into with editors saying, well, they're not established there, so we can't give you as much money or it's a harder deal. Um, I wonder if anyone else has run into that or if I'm just getting you know, jerked around. No, I think that I think that's true, right? They don't have an established readership within that genre. It's not like they went from from horror to thriller, right? Because there's a lot of crossover in those readerships, and I think you can make the argument that the readerships are there in, in those two genres that could can very well intermingle, right? But horror to romance are very separate. That's like going from young adult to romance in some respects as well. Which I know there's conversations that we could have about, you know, how to mitigate and manage those kinds of things when you're a very well-established romance author and then you decide to start writing young adult books, for example. But- By the way, I hope Starbucks is watching and wants to send us lots of coffee because I'll take free coffee. <laughs> are you already gearing for, for what are those called when they sponsors? Sponsors. Well, if Starbucks wants to give us some money or free coffee, hell yeah. And as you know, I will drink any amount of coffee. So anyone, anyone out there who wants to give us coffee, please. Green Mountain, Dunkin' Donuts. There's a Seven across from my house, a Dutch Brothers that's down the street. I've got coffee, uh, coffee, coffee, coffee. And I'll grind it too and just make a pot. Yeah. I don't have a grinder. Do you have a grinder? Is it difficult? I had no. a grinder from the 70s. I have no idea. I think it was my dad's or something. You literally just pour it in and press the button. 
Mm -hmm. grind it. Oh, they had electric grinders then. <laughs> you know, I, I was well, I wasn't once they embedded electricity in 1972, then yes, they did become <laughs> well. Did they have electric can openers in the 70s? I think so, yeah. Now that's I mean, something I, we'll have to have another episode on that, figure it mm -hmm. out. I wasn't opening cans in the 70s, so I, I can't tell you for sure. It would have to be something I'd have to Google. Well, you should have been. <laughs> Um, okay, back to midlist authors. Back to midlist. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say that they they are a debut, and I think that you can treat it that way. And I don't think that being a debut is a bad thing, though. No. I think that that's also a selling point because, in some regards, it's like, well, they're an unknown. You can make them as great as you want to, publisher. So let's make that happen. Ooh, that brings me to something that's super interesting because, uh. I get that a lot for, you know, when you get passes saying, oh, well, we can't break this out or I don't know how to break it out. Yeah. Like it's your job and you have the money you choose, despite what Penguin Random House and Simon Schuster said during their trial that they're dumb dums and have no idea what they're doing. I think if you throw, look at Entangled, they threw in a hundred thousand dollars at Red Tower books and all of a sudden they're everywhere. I mean, I think that that is the the answer to that question, right? Like the answer to the question of how do you get to break this out is money. 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 Yeah. Money. That is the ultimate answer. I think really what that comes down to is do they want to? And so that's why they're saying now is that they don't want to throw the money at that. So, but but the the simple answer is yes. With enough money, you probably can make any book a bestseller. We would be happy to um, also be the test case in that situation as well. Don't you think, anyone? <laughs> Publishers? <laughs> um, so I'm going to have to cut out that part about Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster. <laughs> Yeah, the legal expert is. Yeah. I'm about to make a deal with Simon and Schuster on something, and I don't want them coming back and be like, "Hey, go fuck yourself." Yeah, we can cut all the way through this. Yes, um, <laughs> at 14:31. Four. Okay, write it down. Who's got a pen? Kelly. And I'll hit 14:31. I got the pen. I'm good. Perfect. Um. Okay. So yeah, yeah I, I, I think an interesting conversation here would would be to talk a little bit about, um, and I've had this conversation with my clients before, kind of similar to Jackie, what the conversation you were having with your client earlier, if, if my clients want to do something um, different and break out from their normal mold, which I think is very possible. And actually we encourage it these days is long gone are the days where like, if you write fantasy, you're stuck writing fantasy for your entire career. And that is a great thing, but we do have a, a lot of conversation about um, your personal brand. And I think brand can have a huge umbrella outside of just genre. Um, so if you do want to break out, just doing so within the understanding of the brand you've created and still working underneath that umbrella. Do you guys talk to your clients about those, those things at all? Absolutely. I, I talked to Natasha about my brand. Cause she always asks, what's your brand? I'm like, I have no idea. I like horror and I like nonfiction, but 
you're absolutely right when it comes to brands like Cynthia Paleo's brand is fairy tales. Mm -hmm. No matter what she writes, she likes writing about fairy tales. Hmm. I had a client actually emailed me this morning that talks about that very thing, Kelly. So what she did over the holidays is she created herself an author packet. And in her packet, it's about like who she is as an author, like what her brand is. And she writes um, some cozy fantasy. She writes some cozy mystery. She writes um, a little bit of, gosh, she has this other, a, a little bit more of a cozy fantasy. But the, her themes and general vibes in her books are very similar. And she's actually created this whole world that happens all the way on like the East Coast of fictional world that happens on the East Coast of the United States. So she has like a map of her towns and like where they're located and like how the stories are all somehow interconnected, even though they really don't rely on each other. So I think you're right. I think that, that when it comes down to it, there, there's a brand too behind who is telling the story. Right. And I love the package idea because I there was a certain corporate mega agency that accidentally sent me one of their mega authors packets. And it really was an author packet about who they are, their previous books, their sales, their brands, and even a letter from this author. And I was like, oh, I should really steal that idea because that's a great idea. So I actually started doing that and do have some author packets and, you know, some authors don't necessarily want it or don't necessarily need it because they're with their publisher and they want to stay with that publisher. Why bother? Hmm. Yeah, another thing I might throw in there, because it's a question I get asked a lot on the legal side, and it's a really simple question, is for people who want to do things like well outside their brand and really do want to reinvent themselves as a debut, this idea of using a pen name and setting up a separate persona for that. And that's perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good idea if it's going to sort of muddy the persona you've already created. It's it's not illegal you can you have to sign contracts in your legal name, but you just mention the, that you're writing as so and so, and you can have a separate website. And I think a lot of people often feel that's like naughty, and you're hiding who you are. But it can actually be a really good and very valid strategy for those situations where there's something you really want to write and you could be successful writing, but it's you know it's not going to sit comfortably with what you've developed to that point. Yeah, it also helps great. with reader expectations as well. Yeah. Yeah, Nora true. Roberts, she has like 35 different, you know, pen names. Um, yeah, 45? No, I don't <laughs> know if it's exactly <laughs> 45, but she, she has a lot of pen names. Um, yeah, I yeah. have a client who she had a very, very successful career as a romance writer. Um, and now she wants to turn to writing middle grade. Um, fun very funny uh, middle grade mysteries. And that those two personas do not match. She does not want her middle grade parents and, uh, and readers to Google her name and then find her, you know, bodice ripping <laughs> other, other books. So I think she's very smart in that respect to market herself. Under I, I think we probably all have clients like that. I can think of a couple. And I also think, 
publishers probably don't want to hear this, so don't listen. But I mean, it's an easy kind of way to get around the non-compete. Mm. Um, like my cousin has a whole slew of pen names because she wanted to keep writing and strict non-compete. And, you know, you publish under a different name and no one's the wiser unless you're Nora Roberts. But bear in mind, and I'm just going to be the legal person here, that you still Please. have to have your agent deal with that at the contract stage. So oh, yeah. you're not tricking the agent and the publisher. They know who you really are. But when you have your non-compete clauses drafted, you you put, you know, you won't publish another book in your own name in this genre, and then you can get around the non-compete. But if your non-compete just says you won't publish another book, you then have to renegotiate that non-compete. So just keep that in mind yeah. because I do have people who don't know how to approach an agent if they want to do something like that. And you just be transparent about it. Absolutely. And uh, I've been smart to toot, not to toot my own horn, but in non-competes, I always put in same world or similar characters or plot yes. lines. So, I mean, because, you know, they tried and put in, Oh, same genre. Like, no, you're, if I have a horror writer, you can't keep them from writing another horror for 15 years, more like two years, but still. Right. Right. I would also add to smart. I would also say it's responsible because I think that a mm. lot of times when um, I, there's been times and I'm not going to name names, but there's, you know, some adult writers that have, you know, broken into YA and then as a parent, it's just like, well, do I want my young adult then Googling their name and find those bodice rippers? You know, is that is that a responsible thing to do as mm -hmm. as an author to allow that to happen? Like, yes, you're selling another book, but, you know, is that teen who just enjoyed that sweet whatever you wrote also, are they really ready for that Regency bodice <sighs> They've probably read it already. Let's be honest about it. I have I mean, teenagers. <laughs> it's true. I mean, that's true. I was actually talking to one of my son's friends last night about a romance, an adult romance novel that she has read. Um, so that is fair. But I, but I no, think it's it's responsible of, yes. of an author to just to make sure that you know if they're seeking them out, then yes, they're going to read them. But if they're not actively seeking them out and just happen to, oh my god, I love you know. I love Bob Smith. They're my favorite writer in the whole world. And they just Google and then they find and they're like. Yeah. You know, is it a uh, strictly romance thing, because the examples I keep hearing is romance. Yeah. Ron, it's not, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I, I don't think so, because, I mean, you know, erotic erotica is a very specific category that people might be worried about and that often gets conflated with romance mm -hmm. generally but I do think it's it it can be I mean there's lots of reasons um why I mean this is not exactly the same thing but I used to write short stories under a pen name years ago because I also work as a law professor and I write case books, you know, and, and if, if I'm prescribing a case book that I'm a co-author on for a course I'm teaching, um, you know, and I was writing sci-fi short stories, it's kind of like, why do I want my students looking for that? That's not really the responsibility question Anna's talking about. But um, So what's that pen name? Oh, never mind. <laughs> I don't think anything's available 
anymore under the pen name anyway. But um, I think, you know, the the main concern, I mean, yes, obviously sexually explicit things are concerning, but violence, mm-hmm. um, you know, some, some nonfiction might actually be very graphic in, in some respects and it might not be good. I mean, look, young children can get on the internet and can find anything. Um, I do think romance, particularly when it leans into the erotica area, is the main concern, but I do think there's there's other areas. And I encourage authors to be thoughtful about all of this stuff at the beginning because how you start is often how you have to keep going. Like if you establish a genre under a pen name, it's then very hard to change that once you're successful. So like I was just having this conversation with a um, debut author on my list who does write under a pen name just for privacy reasons uh, and has gone back and forth about, well, you know, if this book is successful and if there's a sequel, do I want people to know it's really me or or not? And that's a, really a decision you sort of have to make up front because, yeah, you can go on your website and say so-and-so and, and change your brand, but it's a lot of work. So I really think whether you're just starting out or whether you're established and you're changing direction or adding a new genre think about it up front because you know you never know what the cost will be to change tack down the line i think it's being intentional yeah you know thinking about everything ahead like when we're building a submission list i'll ask a client like hey are there any editors you dislike or particularly like because I've submitted to editors and all of a sudden clients are like, yeah, that person hates my guts. I'm like, oh, okay. I wish I had known that. Okay. I haven't run into that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, I, an eclectic list. I have gotten a, I have had a client get really angry with me for asking if they had any editors that they wanted to send to. So really? yeah, I did Ooh. just once. Um, and I kind of meant it as like, uh, in the way that you're talking about, like, you know, let me know if there's any editors that you're really excited to work with that kind of thing. Like, you know, just let me know. It's, I, I feel like it's an author's career. And so they should have a say in it. And this author like internalized that and took it as I was asking them to do the research for yeah. like who to submit it to. And that wasn't at all the case. You know, it was, it was more of a, you know, Hey, just let me know if, if there's anyone out there that just like catches your eye. Like you, I would really love to work with this editor or I really would not like to work with this editor. And they just were really, really mad that I even suggested. Interesting. Because I always ask that. Just, you know, any dream editors or dream houses, you know, you know, it's always good to have, have dreams and goals. And, you know, sometimes they say yes. And sometimes they're like, no, I I don't really pay attention to that. That's your job. And I'm like, that's great. Sometimes, you know, authors are like best friends with, an editor and I'll say, Hey, I submitted to John Jingleheimer and they're like, Oh yeah, it's my brother. (laughs) Okay. I wish I had known that. That would have been good information. (laughs) Which is why when I sign people, I say, you know, tell me everything, you know, if Obama ever shook your hand, tell me and I'll decide if it's important. Well, that is important. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, that, that, gets, that gets me thinking about another thing that 
I mean, maybe both mid-list and beginning authors, but, we, you know, we're now sort of talking a little bit about the agent-author relationship and sort of the kind of input that the clients have with agents and editors, and I'm pretty transparent and open um, about those things because ultimately I'm a, I'm a lawyer. Ultimately, you know, we're fiduciaries. We owe that obligation of transparency to our clients. Um but that said, you know, I think one thing for mid-list authors, and here I'm getting at people who've been in the business for a while and have like more than one book out, although often it's an author with one book out, the industry does change and expectations yeah. change. And mm. I think one thing to sustain and enhance a, a mid-list career is to really be open and alert to changes and if you trust your agent and ideally you should um you know to sort of listen to what they're telling you i mean one one big change and this is not a secret to anyone it's all over social media but has been for years is that editors rely more on agents to do a lot of editing than was the case five years ago okay that's just it, it is how it is so if you have a client who's used to being able to send things out that are sort of less well cooked um, in the hope that, well, the editor will really love it and they'll just work on it. That's less true today, you know, than it was five years ago. And I think to kind of sustain a career, you know, the general notion is, well, be easy to work with, be open, listen to what your agent and your editor is saying to you. And if you don't trust your agent or editor, move on to someone you do trust. Um, but be be really alert to those changes because it's heartbreaking to, you know, not be able to sort of continue on a path just because something has changed and you're sort of stuck in the, well, it always used to be like this. I just send my idea to my editor and that's what, you know, it's like, no, that's not going to work now. So I think that is something for particularly mid-list authors to think about. That That's a super good point because... I have mid-list authors who, you know, they had a bunch of books done well, were shopping a new book. And one example is I got fired because I told someone I need a synopsis. And they said, well, I've never done that. I just sent it to my editor. I'm like, well, if you want to ship it to other publishers, I need a synopsis because they're going to ask me for the synopsis. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, synopses are horrible. Everyone hates yeah. them. But like you said, things have changed. And even a couple of years ago when I was selling, editors would make an offer like that and not have to talk to the client and not have to talk to, about edits. But now even current clients with their current editor, the editor says, well, I want to talk to them about this and see where their head is at. And like you said, it's all just, you know, play nice, nod your head, smile. But yeah, I mean, the market has changed, I think, with shrinking advances and paper shortages and so many people writing, it's just gotten harder out there. It's supply and demand at its basic yeah. core, right? There's more people writing. And so there is less, there's more supply, meaning, you know, it gives editors the ability to say, okay, well, I can just wait till the next best you know fairy story about mermaids comes across my desk right because it's bound to happen right yeah well and i think I'm doing... because 
I've had to pass on projects and authors that I'm like, oh, I love this. It's going to be on shelves and six figures, but I just don't have the time. Or, you know, I just, I'm in the middle of contracts. Yeah. I think what I'm hearing, and I've, I've talked to some of my mid-career authors about this, is this is not an industry where you can just coast, right? You have to keep doing, as an author, the things that you did at the beginning of your career with continuing to work on your craft and make those connections and, um, you know, just you, you can't just rest on your laurels. You've got to continue. Now, I mean, I'm not saying you have to continue going to the early beginning conferences that you did, but going to some conferences is still good. Making those connections and developing your network, um, I, I think maybe pinpointing the things about that, that at the beginning of your career that you really loved doing and continuing those um, because that's how you really keep your finger on the pulse of the industry and what's changing and what's not as well. And agents and I know editors have to do the same thing because, mm. you know, when I started, however many years ago, a good percentage of those editors are gone. Yeah. Mm. You know, that, that's that's actually a huge challenge for, for mid-career and mid-list people, the editors moving on, you know, because um, it happens and the days of, you know, having these really close relationships with a particular editor and staying there, I mean, I was honestly, and this was for some legal work I was doing, but I was honestly looking at sort of the amount of layoffs and retirements the big publishers saw in 2023 three alone just in that one year, you know, chances are that half to two-thirds of people with established relationships with editors lost those relationships because the editor left or had the relationship impacted because that editor had to take on a whole bunch of projects from other editors who left. Mm. And and that is something I, I think, I'm, I know I cut you off, Lane, and I'm sorry, but I, 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 I completely forgot what I was saying. Oh, well, now I've messed it all up. But I, I, I do think it's really, really important because those figures are very significant of the changes in, in editors. Uh, and to the extent that an established author is just assuming that's going to continue long term, and this goes to your point about your client who you want to send something out wide when they're used to working with the same editor, well, you know, as soon as you do that, you need the synopsis and you need to convince a whole new acquisitions team at a whole new house to buy the book. It's almost like being a debut again. Mm. And it's interesting you mentioned that because Thomas Doherty Associates, Thomas Doherty left. So they had to totally rename the publisher. Um, and I've had clients, and it's been a struggle, who have lost two or three editors in a year because you know, low pay, low pay, hard work. Um, it wouldn't with the pandemic, you know, people just move on and, you know, instead of making 40 grand a year publishing, they're making 200 grand a year in IT. Yep. Well, I would like to know where these 200 grand in IT jobs yep. are, but. My, um... my sister-in-law makes a lot of money. She's in IT. And I'm like, man, I wish I wasn't stupid and could code. Because there's a lot of money in that coding. Okay, coding. Now that's a little different than just IT, right? We're just that's just. <laughs> what do you consider? What do yeah, you? Yeah, like if you can't, right, like, 
there's i mean i guess there's a lot it's just like in publishing there's lots of different branches in in it and like what you can do and and securities and coding and programming and analytics and they're so metadata whatever yeah, all, all you the know. Things. <laughs> see i'm in kidlit world i hear the word code and i immediately start thinking spies and then i just start getting excited i'm like where's the heist who's where's the bad guy show me the and then I hear, oh, math, numbers, computers, and my eyes glaze over. Well, so. if you're a lawyer, you'd think of the United States Code and all the statutory laws <laughs> and copyrighters Title 17 of the United States Code, which is what I spend a lot of time thinking about. I think of Knights of Salamnia from Dragonlance, but that's because I'm a nerd. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm curious, Kelly, you mentioned spies and... <laughs> thrillers and middle grade is that hot right now because i always think of middle grade as i mean i don't necessarily do middle grade i do horror with middle grade protagonists mm. um and sold as middle grade but i mean yeah, yeah. I, um i if it's well written i think there will always be room for good spies and good heists and good um adventures um, actually, I've got two books right behind me who randomly have the word spies in their title. Um, oh, so that I read over break. Um, yeah, at least they'll always be big in my book. Yeah, oh, I agree. So, okay. Um, so for midlist advances, um, this is oh, let's talk money. Let's yes, I get asked about a lot saying, how much should I expect? And I feel mm -hmm. like a failure saying, I don't know, bro. Um, I mean, do we think mid-list comes with a certain advance? Uh, or I wonder if that's a way someone would think of mid-list versus high-list, front-list, or the new term bottom-list. Um, Thanks, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, 50,000, is that mid-list or is that front-list? I think it's going to depend greatly on who is publishing, right? That's yeah. that's the first thing. Like, yeah. where, are, where have they published at before? What are their sales numbers? Those kinds of things. I think what's more important than trying to, like, pinpoint an exact number on a scale is, like, where did you start and where can we and how can we bring you up from there right mm -hmm. yeah. so i think it's it's better to look at in those respects i think every book should get you more yes and that's something else i think midlist authors should know because i've had some that say oh well you know a lower advanced or the same advance is fine and i have to say no the advance always goes up it should be never going down or uh staying the same because we don't want you to stay set stagnant that's mm -hmm. part what, of what, yeah, we want you to get more and more money but what about your earlier question about switching genres and then are you a debut again how does that then affect the advance that's also a good question because i i think you do have at some point you do take a cut because yeah. i mean you know, publishers are super duper risk adverse, um, but in some sense, they are taking a bigger risk, not a bigger risk, but a risk. And uh, I think it's only fair 
that we be reasonable. And, you know, if you've written a thousand fantasy books and get $200,000 a fantasy book, if you come in with a romance, I mean, you're not going to get the same amount of money. And I don't necessarily think you should, because if you publish a romance for big bucks and then the romance sells 10 copies, um, that really, I think, pardon my French, fucks with your numbers. I think we keep picking on romance authors here, but romance authors oh, are amazing and they are the bread and butter of, of our industry. So, and I, 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 love I started easy. out representing romance. I still have a whole bunch of romance authors. Romance I think is really great because you can do like Harlequin series and make a great career. Cause you know, they're 50,000 words and you write those. And I have a lot of clients and have, had clients i still get royalties from clients who published harlequin series i don't know 10 years ago actually i might at this point round back to the um antitrust decision the 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 uh, case in november october november 22 the decision was handed down where judge pan in the dc court uh blocked, upheld the DOJ's attempt to block the Penguin Random House, Simon and Schuster merger. And on the how much is how much advance should you want, reading that case is a tremendous education in how publishers make these money decisions because the judge goes through all the evidence that the publishers submitted about what they consider a bestseller, what they consider and, and a lot of this was in the definition of market for the antitrust claim. So that's why they were doing that in the case. Um, but there's a fascinating part of the judgment where the publishers are saying, really, the market that we should be looking at in this case is what I can't remember the term they use, but it's like best best sellers. It's like the top sellers. And these are the books that get over a million dollar advances and they're all celebrities and politicians. Uh, and the case actually settled on defining the market for the antitrust case as authors who get $250,000 advances or above. Now, to me, that's not a mid-list author. You know, to me, that's significantly more than a standard mid-list author gets, but that was the market that the case defined as the one that would be harmed, where authors would be harmed at the point of if the merger went through. Uh, but there's a lot of other great information in that case and there's graphs that are simple to follow that really talk about uh, how the publishers make these money decisions, and you can get a uh, copy of the judgment online, and maybe we can link it with the podcast if anyone wants to read it. But it's, I it's think, a- not to cut you off, but <laughs> I am cutting you off because that that is such a great, fantastic idea, and I think everyone should read it. We should be reading. I, I went through, you know, I'm a dummy, so I went through like a couple pages, the, you know, big breakout stuff. But I think authors should be reading that. And that is a fantastic idea to go through it on the podcast, especially with you, because you're the lawyer, that I I think there's a lot of great info in there. And I've used that to fix up, you know, payment structures where they say, oh, well, we have to pay out in apes because of the um, pandemic. And I come back and say, well, that's not true, because in court, this is what was said. 
Yeah, it's 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 very useful, and and the publishing paid me document that is still floating around online that's very mm. useful too. I've, I've actually the reason I'm looking at all this info so closely is I'm I wrote an article that is going to come out in the Pittsburgh Law Review in a, in a year or so where I was I was looking at this kind of issue and how it impacts whose voices are are published. So. Um, if that article comes out, or when it comes out, I'll put a link somewhere and people can read it. Yeah, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, I mean, I think it would be cool if we could just make everyone get $250,000 as an advance. Yeah, it'd be great. I right? Mean, I wish we could go in and say, hey, is this author mid-list? And they'll be like, yeah, they're the mid-list. I'm like, okay, give us $250,000 right there. You said it yourself. I mean that that's what the definition is. Then I mean, for me to argue with that definition, or are you calling my client a bottom list? <laughs> well, to be fair, I don't think the court called that mid list, but that was where they felt the line should be drawn to decide, you know, whether there was an antitrust violation or not. So there is, a, you know, I can't remember the term they used, but certainly the way the court looked at the market was looking at much bigger money figures than I'm dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis as an agent. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think every author gets $350,000 a book deal. Well, definitely not picture book authors, but if you can convince me of how to do that, I'd be all down for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I also think it's good to think about mid-list authors when it comes to agents because that's mm -hmm. quote unquote also our bread and butter because right. you know especially at our agency we like a quality over quantity so we're looking for books that we can break out or that we think are going to break out and even books that you know I think may not break out or aren't for everyone the mid-list authors and the high advanced authors help us be able to work on those and sell those. It's very much like the film industry. You know, they put out 10 Marvel movies to cover 300 indie movies they know are going to lose big money. Right. I mean, but some of those movies, they, like, you know, but some of them just shouldn't be made. But, you know, that's a topic for another day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's always something that shouldn't be made. Maybe oh, even this I, podcast. Maybe someone should be like, shut the hell up. We don't want to listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, you know, one one other point, and I think this is a misconception. I might be wrong about how widespread this misconception is, but one other thing I'd raise is a lot of authors uh, I've seen, I probably should spend less time on social media, but, you know, on social media there's a lot of complaint about how come this book got all this money. Often it's, you know, a celebrity book or a book the publishers put a lot of money behind and my book didn't and the I think that's very much a misconception because I think mid-list authors actually aren't competing with those books you know those books enable you know other books to be published I think what mid-list authors are competing with is backlist mm -hmm. because exactly the publishers have the decision of how many new books do I purchase versus how much can I keep, you know, obviously there need to be some new books, but how's Backlist doing? And, you know, I would think about it or I would encourage people to think about it more in those terms than how come, you know, Prince Harry gets a million dollars and I don't get anything. It's, it's, that's not really, that, that's really a false equivalency. 
It's a really good point. And I shut down the conversation. No, not at all. I'm just thinking because that's a very good point. Because, you know, I've sold to publishers who say, oh, we give smaller advances, but that's so royalties earn out faster. And, you know, you maybe say that's bullshit, but it, it really is that, you know, we've gotten larger advances that will never earn out just because it's usually the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. But like the Harlequins that are, you know, four or five, six grand a pop, those earn out in a month. And then for the next 30 years, however often I'm getting a hundred bucks, 300 bucks, even with, you know, in, no advanced publishers that we do 50 50 splits with I, I i can make over a year more than i would have ever gotten as an advance well, i think though too it it will still depend on how much the publisher is helping to push that book and getting it out there in front yes. of those readers because there are there are plenty of cases where you know a publisher puts out a book you know, it does their thing, whatever they do behind the scenes, and then they just kind of like let it ride. And so, yeah, I mean, like with the Harper Collins union strike, that really affected a lot of book releases. Yeah, and actually, I mean, go ahead. I was just gonna say we probably could do an entire episode on just that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, write that down. We should because I remember. I mean, pro union, but. Uh, you know, there's always collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, whether it's the floor or a couple books. And actually, one thing I, I wanted to add on to the, you know, how much resources the publisher puts behind making the book a success, um, this may be more for beginning authors, but it might also be for mid-list authors who are kind of reinventing or working with a new publisher, you are not going to find the marketing and publicity plan in your publishing contract because that's something that is, you know, it's going to happen later and it's subject to all the stuff we've been talking about, COVID, union action, whatever it may be. Um, But it is worth having that conversation with your editor and the marketing team. And I'm often more impressed with, say, a publisher, even with a smaller advance, who will get on a call with me and the client and talk about, here's what we're going to do, you know, here's the plan, here's what we're going to do for the book, here's how how we're going to be behind it now of course that's not contractually binding but you do get a sense of what's possible and realistic and you can have your questions answered um so i you know i i do want to raise that because i think people need to understand it's a discussion that you should ideally have but you can't expect it to be written in the contract mm-hmm. i think yeah, too, I, a bunch oh. of clients want stuff written in the contract like that because, you know, an editor will tell us something. And I say, listen, I mean, we have it in email. We have some quote unquote legal standing, but no one's going to put that in a contract. It's just, you know, not something they can promise. I think another point to make just to be beyond that is that a lot of things that the publisher does to push a book, we don't see. Right. And I think that is a a huge complaint a lot of times from authors is that, you know, well, my publisher's not doing anything to sell my book. But the but the reality is, is that these publishing, these marketing publicitists like they they're 
they're busting their butts out there. Like they're they're doing the best they can to get their books seen and get their books on shelves in stores and, and do all of the things with the very minimal time that they've been given for each of these things. So uh, mass respect to all the marketing and publicity teams out there that, that do all the things that don't get the credit that they well deserve. But um, that kind of is just a, a side way that just, you know, even though you can't see it, it doesn't mean that it's not there, right? It doesn't mean it's not happening. So yeah. I think that that too, having those meetings are really important just to kind of get a better understanding. And I think, I think if we could get more transparency in publishing overall, I think that would, that would help out a lot of authors. And, Absolutely. and in that feeling of, you know, I'm not getting the support that, that I'm looking for. And actually yeah. maybe we could have an editor on a future, or maybe not an editor, a marketing person on a future podcast and just talk about, you know, the things they do, like sending the review copies and, uh, you know, sending the awards copies and all that stuff that they're, you know, promoting authors as someone who could write a blog post about this, that or the other. So, so yeah. Lane, that has to be on our list. Absolutely. I was actually thinking I'm going to have Joe Monty on at some point because okay. he and I ended up having a 30 minute discussion about the thing. And, you know, he was very honest and I think he's the type of guy who no bullshit. And like you were saying, and I think editors push a lot too, obviously. I mean, I I've heard from other editors and people who I've literally never met saying, Oh yeah, I heard about this book. I love this book. It's so fantastic. And I'm like, Oh, how'd you hear about it? And they're like, your editor told me they've been telling everyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that something that a lot of mid-career authors do know that debuts don't is, is sometimes you just have to ask for things and you don't always get it. But even by asking, it lets your editor and your marketing and publicity team know that you're following, you're engaged, you're willing to participate and be a, a good, responsible partner in promoting your work. Um, and sometimes you you get it. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. We'll, we'll get this out. And other times, you know, it's a, we can't help you there, but thanks for letting us know. But um, it never hurts to ask. And by the, by the same token, tell people what you're doing. Like, you know, right. I, you know, I, I, I write my book about law for authors and I, if I'm doing something, I tell my publisher because occasionally they have wanted to put it on their website or put it on their social. So, you know, it's it's a two-way conversation. And if you're someone, I agree with you, you should ask and you should ask nicely and not in a demanding way. Right. But it's also much more balanced and pleasant when you do ask if you're also letting them know what you're doing and saying, hey, I did this interview. Here's a link to it if you want it. Absolutely. And I have to tell clients to let me know. Like, see, right. see me on everything right. so I know I what's going on. <laughs> um, like, yeah. I have to give a sh shout out to Jenny Keeper because she's a marketing whiz and her book, This Wretched Valley, is coming out two Love weeks. That cover. The 16th, Love it. right? right? It's a gorgeous cover. And she has, you know, she started her own bookstore. And because it's about mountaineering, she has all these carabiners with, uh, you know, the book stuff. And I was kind of like, yeah, you got to give me like 30 of them. Yeah. Like, I want those, you know, and there's this phone number that if you call, it's, you know, you're listening to all the people get murdered. Um, and she did a bunch of. No, it is scary. No, it's, it's not scary. It's not scary. They're just getting murdered. It's no big deal. No, no, they're not getting murdered. I don't know what you're talking about. They're not really getting murdered. No. 
I don't know where you got that from. That's crazy. Are you? I'm just going to gaslight you. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, now you're you just gaslighting me. I never said that. I don't know where that came from. Watch, he edits it out. Like, see, I told you I didn't say it. Oh, that's a good idea. I should edit it out. We know the truth, Lane. We know I, won't. Truth. I won't, obviously, because it's very funny. Um, back to mid-list authors. What were we talking about? There was something great I wanted. I thought someone said. Well, we were talking about authors engaging with the publisher, both in asking for support and in letting them know what they're doing. And then you said, of course, they should be telling their agents too, which we really appreciate because we can help boost yeah. your stuff. Yes. And Jenny's been very good about keeping me on the marketing because, you know, I learned a lot from her because she's amazing and knows marketing. But, you know, maybe I'll have a random idea to throw in there. I don't think I have. But, you know, if for some reason I come up with an ingenious idea that's going to make us millions of dollars, I'll be able to throw it in there. I mean, I know that I'm always on the lookout for things. So if I see someone who's does a call out and like is looking for, you know, authors for a podcast, I'll send it to my yeah. authors. If, yeah. you know, I, I hear of an opportunity, uh, whatever it may be, I'm, I, I, you probably are the same way. Like you're always kind of have your feelers out there at all times, just kind of like checking it out. Like you're in the bookstore and you hear, Oh, you know, I, I really, I wish there was a middle grade mystery that, Oh, did you hear about the curious league of detectives and thieves by Tom? Phil? I mean, you, you're always trying to jump in there and, and find opportunities for your, for your client. At least I know I do that. All no, yeah. And I think that's something authors also don't see. They don't yeah. see what the publisher is doing behind the scenes. They don't see what we're doing behind the scene. You right. know, um, I mean, we're always working every time I'm talking to a producer, I'm pitching uh, a project from 10 years ago that I know an a uh, client cares about. I've been pitching the same project to, 30 different producers, 10 different times. And, you know, it hasn't clicked, but it'll click with someone and then we'll be billionaires. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was randomly at a comic book store um, over the holidays and they had a section of books that were just prose novels. They weren't graphic novels. And so I was, I brought up a conversation. I was like, Hey, you know what, what makes you decide which prose novels to stock here? And, mm -hmm. and so of course, then I, throw in there you know my client's book would fit right here in this and they wrote it down and and so you know i mean are they going to buy a hundred thousand copies you know probably not but still it's introducing a new a new store to my client's work and then hopefully a new reader will find them from that so on that note it's funny because whenever i go to a bookstore i'll buy whoever's whatever client's book is there and I'll be like, yeah, I sold that book. And they're like, oh, what do you mean? I'm like, I sold it to the publisher. So you should order a bunch more books. And they're like, oh, okay, well, maybe we will. I'm like, no, nah, you should. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, come on, you want to do it. Like, put it in right now. I want to see you type it in your little computer. <laughs> if only I had the cojones to actually do that, but. Well, everyone who is, follows me on any social media knows that if I, I'm always looking for my client books at bookstores and libraries, I always take shelfies and post them on social media and tell everyone to buy them because, you know, it is exciting for us. Like, you know, 
I, I don't know if this is the same at all agencies, but we're kind of a, a nice size that we all know who who the clients are and who reps who and we're, we meet every week and talk about projects and we're very excited when people do well and their books are out there. So, um, you know, that's something I just, I, I remember seeing a, a book that I worked really hard on and it was, you know, really important to me and the first time I saw it on the shelf in Barnes and Noble I literally jumped up and down in the store I don't think I've ever done that in my life but I was literally jumping with joy I think that's also something authors may not know that we're all always hunting the shelves for that book yeah I mean we may not take pictures of it but just you know being a small part of bringing that thing to life is magical yeah. Oh, I always hunt for books, my my authors and your authors. And every time I find them, I put them face out on the shelf. Yeah, I do that. I do that too. That's so okay. funny. I do the um, same thing. I, I have so many videos that I've sent to fam- my family and friends of me laughing and just moving the book so it's face out. Yep. Um, or to the author. Anyway, it's uh, it's very exciting when we see the product of a lot of hard work, you know. Okay, so we reached the one hour point, which means we're going to cut out and then, you know, for the next hour, it'll be for sponsors, people who sign up for Patreon, the bonus episode. Um, So let me do this outro. I actually wrote it out, so hopefully it sounds good. Um, Thanks for joining us for the Murky Middle on the Literary Lens podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and comment, or join our Patreon. We appreciate all the support. When you sign up for our Patreon, you get access to early episodes, bonus episodes, access to our Discord, which I think is super cool, um, and the chance to win a prize each week. You know, prizes are gift cards, ARCs, um, even limited signed edition books, which I think is super cool. Um, again, shout out to Jenny Keeper's This Wretched Valley, which comes out the 16th. It's in the it's a survival horror in the vein of the Dilatoff Pass meets Yellow Jackets, which is like the most amazing show ever. Um, also check out New York Times bestselling author Suzanne Young's Writing in Italy retreat at writinginitaly.com. Um, I went last year and it was the most magical trip ever. Um, I even brought back some pasta and sent Anne some pasta. Did you actually eat the pasta yet? No? No. <laughs> I had to like smuggle it through customs and fight off a bunch of dragons. And, and the stuff. box that it came in was so big. I was like, oh my gosh, how much pasta did you see? Was it? It was giant. It was this giant box. I don't even remember. That's yeah, funny. That sounds like something I would do. Um, anyway, uh, so we'll post all those links in the description. And if you signed up for Patreon,